chapter 11. We're going to read through verses 1 through 15. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes, and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. We're just going to pause right there right now, um, and we'll pick up after our prayer. But with that, can we just bow our hearts? Abba Father, there is a lot here to dissect and to digest in these first two to three verses, Lord. So give us ears to hear what your spirit will speak to us. Give voice to my teaching and guiding and directing. And may it um, be with clarity, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I would have been this titleless one, um, I know maybe most of your Bibles say Saul saved Jabesh Gilead. But really, it's God who saved Jabesh Gilead using Saul. And I just want to go back a little bit to review where we've been. You know, we, the children of Israel, the elders come out and they request of Samuel, more like order Samuel, that we want a king. Um, in 8.5, um, they come up to Samuel, and I'll just read the verse to you. The elders of Israel, back it up to verse 4. In chapter 8, then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all nations. Oddly enough, that seems like the reason for that, um, them wanting a king, because Samuel's old and his sons don't walk in his way. But actually, chapter 12 of 1 Samuel and verse 12, clarifies it even more. And I'll back it up with verse 11. Um, this is Samuel in chapter 12 listing all the things that God had done in the past and now present to the children of Israel. And he goes back to a little bit of history about the judges of uh, Israel. In verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel says this, the Lord sent Jerubbabel, but that is Gideon, the, one of the judges, Bedan, that is Barak, another judge, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And in verse 12, and when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. 
So we're getting a little bit of clarity of what's going on here and what it has been happening for a while now. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they desire a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, um, we get a visual look of this king. And in verse 2, um, the king to be chosen was a, a man, a Benjamite, a son of Kish, and he was a choice, he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than the other people. We get this visual, or the children of Israel get this visual of Saul, their soon-to-be king. In verse 9, or chapter 9, we have a spiritual anointing on chapter 10, I'm sorry, we have a spiritual anointing on Saul. And 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, it starts with this, and it works its way through, and it says, then, chapter 10, verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This is Samuel speaking these words to Saul. And in verse 9 and 10, so it was, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that is Saul, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. So we are finding out the reason Israel desires a king. We get a visual of Saul their future king, and we have an anointing of the spirit upon Saul as he's going to be king. Now, picking up in verse or chapter 11, a lot of scholars believe that a month has passed now since the final verses of um, chapter 10 when Samuel makes this and uh, tells Saul what's going to go on. And in 26... In 27 of chapter 10, and Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him. That is, valiant men went with Saul. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Anointing of a new king, well, he doesn't have a palace to go to, and he doesn't have any fancy home to go to, he just goes home. And now it opens with chapter 11. And there is a lot to digest here in these first few verses. Again, Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes, and bring approach on all Israel. It's important to understand exactly Nahash and what his name means, but actually who it is that's controlling Nahash. Um, when Saul went home and Nahash proceeds to attack uh, and encamp, that is, besiege Jabesh Gilead, 
The name Nahash in ancient Hebrew means serpent or serpent-like, but it can also mean a metal, like copper or brass or bronze. So we know that a serpent, a snake, a person, a snake-like person, well, a serpent is sin, standing for sin. And we know that the bronze, the metal bronze, is judgment. So right away, your mind must go to that serpent on a pole, that bronze serpent on a staff with the children of Israel out there. Um, Nahash um, is being encouraged and being promoted by Satan here. And Nahash was a king of a nomadic people, the Ammonites. And if you know your history, the Ammonites are distant relatives to the Jews, to the Israelites. Um, they come from Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, um, and they came from one of Lot's daughters. And they are distant relation, but they are in conflict with the children of Israel. Um, and they're especially in conflict with uh, Jabesh Gilead. Now, Jabesh Gilead has a big significance here. It, it's an area, and the name itself means dry or rugged or a dry place. And it is of Gilead. There is Gilead, and then there is Jabesh Gilead. And it's probably, possibly, the capital of Gilead here. And what's been happening is Nahash has been making raids and incursions into Gilead and been taking villages and um, conquering towns like that. And now he's moved his way up and encamped and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And the people there, they're asking for a covenant with Nahash, the people that lay live in Jabesh Gilead, and making a covenant with us and we will serve you. When you look up the word covenant here, this is um, a strong bond between two parties. The covenant, the word covenant actually means cutting in Hebrew. Um, it, it means like there is, um, if you've seen this film, Outlaw Josie Whale, Josie Wales makes a covenant with the Indian chief as they, um, as they may start as a war against each other, but there's an offer to live in harmony with each other. And to solidify that harmony, that covenant, they take a knife and they cut each other's hands, the Indian chief and Josie Wales, and they grasp hands together, and they blood bind. This is what the children of Jabesh Iliad, the elders Nat, are wanting to make a covenant with, Nahash. With that, there's this, like, this blood covenant with them, but then they say, hey, we'll pay taxes. We'll be your servants, and you can tax us, and we'll pay them. The Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, he answers them, on this condition will I make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. So honestly, I don't think um, what he's looking for is a fight, really. He's come here not to be served by them. 
he's coming here to take back land that he lost, that the Ammonites lost. And I'm truly thinking he wants, he's, he's busting for a fight. And he's looking for a fight with the, the people in Jabesh Gilead. There's a little history about um, Jabesh Gilead. And it starts back in Judges. Um, if you turn there with me, in Judges chapter 11. Um, speaks of Jephthah. And in Judges chapter 11, um, Jephthah, I'll start in verse 1. The Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Jephthah was no pushover. He may have been forced out of Gilead, and he built up a band of raiders with him, tough men like he was. And um, he made, uh, and he went out raiding with them. Now, it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, made war against Israel. So what's happened here? Well, in verse 13, um, the, the people, the children of Gilead, the, the people, the elders, they'd asked Jephthah, this half-brother of theirs, to come and rule over them and to fight for them. And in verse 13, it says this, And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, and he said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed, and in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. What's happening here is the king of the Ammonites they lose Jabed, or they lose Gilead to Jephthah. Um, in verse 32 and 33 of chapter 11, Judges chapter 11, Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aor as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter, thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. 
So what's been happening now, as we see the history, Nahash is moving in to reclaim the land taken away back in Judges, at Jephthah. And he's been making incursions and taking small towns and villages, and now he's worked his way up to most likely the capital of Jabesh Gilead with the whole desire of taking all the land. Now, I love how the compromise of this um, in these next two, uh, three, two verses, three and four, is just stunning because, first of all, Nahash is willing to compromise, and so are the residents of Jabesh Gilead. In verse three, it says, then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the ter territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. So the compromise here, both on Nahash and the people of uh, Jabesh Gilead uh, remarkable. Now, remember, he says that he'll make a covenant with them as long as I can put out your right eyes and bring a reproach on all Israel. I cannot, for the life of me, picture that the men and the, the children of Jabesh Gilead are going to stand in line and let them gouge out their right hand, their right eye. You know, they're going to stand in line and just sit there and have this done to them. And then pay taxes beside that and serve uh, Nahash and the Ammonites um, in, in reproach to all Israel. So they offer a compromise to Nahash. He accepts it. And then they, ex he, they make this compromise for, well, let us have seven days a week to go find somebody to fight for us. So Nahash is either so confident of his army and so confident of the success that he has, previous success that he's had, that he's willing to allow messengers to be sent out all over to go find somebody to help find them, fight for them. It shows that right now, Israel, Judah, there is no unity right here as you know that um, they fight amongst themselves, as we, we heard in the history of Benjamin, what kind of tribe that was, um, and how Israel came against Benjamin. In a sense here, there is no organized army anymore here, and Jabesh Gilead is either caught flat-footed or they were living in such peace that um, they desired, or they just didn't realize that they would be attacked. And so they have no answer to this other than to say and ask, well, give us seven days to see if we'll have anybody of our, of our uh, other nation coming to fight for us. In verse 4, so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. So what's, they've sent messengers out, and now um, they finally end up by uh, Gibeah. Some of the messengers came to Gibeah. And so the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul, 
and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now, Gibeah saw, understand that there is a Gibeah itself, the major Gibeah, and then there is probably also the Gibeah Saul, which would be the capital, wherever Saul is. This is going to be the main area of Gibeah here. And in verse 5, well, as, as the children of Israel hear the news from the messengers, what's going to happen, they break out and weep. You know, we've seen this over and over in the history, that they get loud and they cry and they wail. And Saul just happens to be in the area to hear this. In verse 5 it says, Now there was Saul coming out behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. So one of many stops that had happened as the messengers went out trying to find somebody to fight for them, they finally land in uh, Gibeah of Saul, and they share the news. And Saul, um, now coming up behind a herd, a herd is multiple animals. So I don't know if Saul here is in part of the plowing of the field or um, is, is uh, what he's doing with this herd, but he comes up behind a herd from a field, and he asks the people what's troubling them. And they tell him. In verse 6, it says this, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So when the Spirit here comes upon Saul, we're finding out, and we'll, we, we've seen in the past, that when the Spirit comes upon him, he provides some unbelievable power and, and a new and unusual power. Um, there's a history of this when the Spirit comes upon a person. If you turn back to Judges with me there, in Judges 14.6, most of this is going to deal with Samson. And you're familiar with the events of Samson. But in Judges 14.6, I want to show you this new and unusual power that comes upon um, Saul is the same one that had come upon Samson. Judges chapter 14, verse 6. Now, this is Samson. To just give it some context of what is happening, um, Samson wants to get a wife. And he tells his father to get this uh, wife, who is a Philistine, um, to get it for him. And my father and mother are displeased. And Samson, so in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against them. Samuel's, or Samson's alone. His mother and father are not there. And the spirit of the Lord, verse 6, came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. The spirit 
of the Lord came mightily upon him and provided a new and powerful strength um, to Samson. In verse 1419, just a little bit further down, um, there came, then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So what, what's happened is um, his wife has portrayed him. She's given him the answer to a riddle that Samson had. Um, the, the, back it up to verse 18. So the men in the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, this is Samson talking to the Philistines. If you had not plowed with my heifer, meaning his wife, you would not have solved my riddle. Then verse 19, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. His anger had been aroused, just like Saul's. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him and gave him, again, unusual power. Another one in um, Judges Chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, this is Samson defeats the Philistines. And in chapter 15, 14 and 15, it says this, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone jaw of a donkey, reached out his hand, and took it and killed a thousand men with it. This unusual power, this new power that's received both from Samson and throughout the history, the spirit providing power and strength, and now Saul. The same thing happens. Saul is angry. He comes up. To hear what the people are weeping about, he is told what's going on. The threat against uh, Jabesh Gilead, the people there from Nahash, the Ammonite king. The spirit of the Lord of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. In verse 7, so he took a yoke of oxen. This is back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. So here, I don't know what happened to FedEx or UPS, that they weren't uh, able to send this stuff out, so he had to use messengers, which would consume a lot of days, if you understand. But he cuts up, uh, it's usually two oxen to a yoke, so he cuts them up and he sends the pieces out to all the territory, and he threatens them, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen, whoever re receives these pieces of oxen. Note here, Saul, in the spirit, speaks a powerful truth that the children of Jabesh, Gilead, 
are ignorant of or just refuse to, um, to acknowledge. He says in verse 7, this is Saul, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. The children of Jabesh Gilead, the elders, the leaders, they had an opportunity to confront and face Nahash by contacting Samuel, by praying. They do neither. They do not humble themselves before God. They don't seek Samuel for prayer and for help. And it seems that they're ignorant of Saul now being king. Granted, he hasn't been ordained yet. There isn't a coronation yet that comes later. But they choose to look for help in the flesh without the spiritual help first. They do not seek Samuel or they do not seek God. They seek the other children of Israel to help them. And Saul, in the spirit here of God, points out to them a truth. You sought neither Saul nor Samuel to do battle. So, continues in, the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. So with the spirit of God upon Saul, we're also seeing leadership qualities. We see him that's going to have military qualities. And we see here that he is going to unite a people. Remember, um, children of Israel, they are not united together. There are times when they gather together against the common enemy. Sometimes they fight themselves. And right now, Saul, in the spirit of God, is showing the ability to have leadership qualities here as a king. He's soon to have military qualities as a leader, a general, as their king. In verse 8, he then says, When he numbered them in Bezak, that is the children of Israel, were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Here you see a hint of the division already. This isn't, now understand, Saul, David, Solomon, well, Samuel, even before that, are all um, rule with the united Israel. Judah and Israel are united. But here you get a hint of a coming separation already. Because in verse 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. So Saul has raised up an army of 330,000 men. And he said to the messengers, in verse 9, who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Um, the tomorrow, the sun, when the time of the sun is hot, that's about midday. And Saul has told the men of Jabesh Gilead to go and report um, um, that to the residents of Jabesh Gilead that they are going to come with an army. 
and um, that you are going to have help. So in verse 10, therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So what happened now is they have come back to Jabesh Gilead. They have reached out or met with Nahash's member, uh, messengers and they set up Nahash for a defeat here by saying, well, yeah, we're going we're gonna to come out and meet you and you can do whatever you want with us. Giving him the impression that Nahash is going to defeat Jabesh Gilead and the children of Gilead without a fight. They're going to submit to the, having their eyes gouged out and they're going to submit to paying taxes to him and serving him. And they tell him, tomorrow we're going to come out to you. And so in verse 11, it was the next day that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for the day the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's the next day, in verse 11, as it says, and Saul put the people in three companies. He copied pretty much Gideon and how he divided his men up. And they come into the midst of the camp, in the midst of the camp, in the morning watch. The morning watch can either be from two to six in the morning or three to six in the morning. Here, the Ammonites, they're... They're thinking, and their thinking is, that this is going to be a breeze to go over because the children are not going to fight. The elders, the people of Jabesh Gilead, are coming out to submit to them, and they feel pretty comfortable and secure in where they're at. They're told by um, the elders of Jabesh Gilead that... Um, they were told that uh, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Ammonite, um, in verse 10, it says, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So the Ammonites are figuring this is going to be a breeze. This is going to be very easy. Understand. I don't think they're going to take this, Nahash and the Ammonites are going to take this um, with grace. I don't think they're going to show grace. They were looking for a fight. They were going to threaten the people of Gilead with gouging out their eyes. I think they knew that they weren't going to get this. In my heart, I think they knew that these people would not submit to this and would probably put up a fight. And that's what Nahash was really looking for, was a fight, a reason to kill. Maybe he would, they would have found another tribe to come and help them, a bigger tribe, 
maybe better armed. But I get the feeling Nahash was pretty confident in his army and the men he was leading from the success before, and they were pretty much ready to do battle. And they are so secure in their success with this that they feel they can sleep in the morning hours, the early hours of the morning, in security and not have to worry. But what happens? In verse 12, um, or let's just back it up to verse 11. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, that would be probably two to six in the morning, and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. The heat of the day was probably midday, and this is a slaughter. So much so, and it happened that those who survived, and know how many number that is, were scattered so that no two of them were left together. No two could come together and commiserate or what happened to us? What the heck went on? In verse 12, it says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put him to death. Um, this after this successful battle, and their blood stirred up. The, the um, men who came, the 300,000, the 330,000 that came, were divided, their blood is up and boiling, and they are ready to continue killing. Now they're talking about killing the men who didn't accept Saul as king. Back in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, 27 when um, Samuel had explained to the people the behavior of this king, and uh, Samuel told them what their king is going to be like, and then he sent them home. Well, there's a tribe there. There are several tribes there. In verse 26, as Saul also went home to Gibeah and valiant men with him, whose hearts God had touched, but some rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Um, but he held his peace is almost because a sense like he ignored them, like he didn't hear them. And this... Um, these rebels, they don't know for sure who they were. I mean, conjecture or speculation is it could have been people from bigger tribes in Israel, Ephraim, Judah, who were thinking that um, how can the smallest of the tribe have a king and um, to lead them? And they might have been the ones that came in conflict against Saul. But it says here that after the wipeout of Ammonites, in verse 12, that the people said to Samuel, these are the ones who backed Saul, who um, fought in this battle, and they said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul ring over us? Bring the men out that we may put him to death. You had unity here. You are a unified army to fight an enemy. And now, as their bloodthirst is continuing, now they're looking for those men from the tribes that came against Saul and his being anointed king. Um, they want to kill him, them. But Saul, 
And this is where it's so important to understand that the new heart God gave Saul and that he's displayed here, the qualities of a king in leadership, the qualities of a general in the military, in the army, and leading the forces, um, his new heart also shows grace. When God gives to a person or gives to a nation, from way back when and even to, to now, what he gives has multi-layers and purpose for God to be fulfilled. When, when it's, there are multiple layers of reason and purpose behind God giving Saul a new heart. When you think of it, Saul almost displayed a reluctance in being king in the beginning. Um, Saul um, was disobedient to God in not stepping up when he was anointed king. And um, there was a reluctance on his part, it seemed, like wanting to be king. But God gave him a new heart. And with that, there are layers and layers of reasoning behind that. Um, one is, how would you like to be thrust in as the king of Israel, never having the experience or the, the knowledge of what a king will be for the children of Israel? And how could a God do that to a man and not equip him to be a leader, to be a king for the children of Israel? It would, be, it would be lacking grace for God to do that to a man, just thrust them into this position and abandon him, leave him to his own devices. But God doesn't do that. His grace is magnificent. His grace is, is unbelievable. And he's given opportunity to Saul to have a new heart, the spirit of God to come upon him, and to, for a short while here, lead the people, unify them, and rule in them under a godly direction. In the same way that there's another layer to this, Saul could never stand before God afterwards and say, it was unfair to me that you would thrust me in as king, ill-equipped to lead these people. Um, he cannot stand before God and say that because God gave him a new heart. God empowered him and gave him wisdom and a taste of what it is to be a king, to lead them and to lead the people um, in righteousness and in power through the Holy Spirit. So when God gives, there are multiple reasons, multiple layers that God is going to accomplish this as he does with Saul as first king. Um, we all face that same thing. We cannot stand before God and say that he had been unfair to us in our lives because we didn't know him and uh, he didn't prepare us um, because we've all had that time where we have come to meet God. We may accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we're on fire for him. And then as time passes, we backslide, and we start moving away from God. Um, 
we cannot stand before him ever and say that it was unfair to us that um, we stand before this just God, just God, and try to claim that he's been unfair in our lives. In Revelation, when Jesus comes to rule and reign for a thousand years, and as Satan is bound, but then released, and the people again come against Jesus, come against heaven, um, none of those people that were in that thousand years of living with Jesus Christ and given the opportunity to see what righteous rule is like, they cannot stand before God and say they never had the opportunity to know what um, living with Christ was going to be like. They have no excuse for their conduct. They, Jesus ruled and reigned, reigned in righteousness. He brought peace for a thousand years. It was paradise and earth for them. And now the opportunity came for that to continue, but they chose to go back to their old ways. And, it, and you see that throughout, that the opportunity is given. God empowers people with the Spirit, and the opportunity is there for to continue to walk in that way. And they have no excuse. You cannot stand before God at the judgment seat and say he's been unfair. He has been more than fair. His grace has been uh, incredible for us. Also, you know that when Saul received the Spirit of God, when Saul acted as a king um, in a righteous manner, um, with leadership qualities, through God, do you know that God had an understanding from Saul's birth to Saul's death that if Saul had remained a believer in God and a follower of God and obedient to God, that God himself knows that intimately from Saul's birth to Saul's death, what his life would have been like if he had been obedient to God throughout his entire kingdom, throughout his entire reign. God even said to him that if he had followed along, that his reign on the throne would have been eternal. It would have been forever. That went to David. But God is not speaking hyperbole or concept here. He knows intimately Saul's birth and his direction that he was going to his death as a man that had followed God and stayed with God and led the people. He knows it from beginning to end. He's there. He's also there when Saul starts out tentative, comes strong, but then walks away from God. He knows that intimately. He knows that Saul as he knew the Saul in a more intimate way um, if Saul had been obedient to God throughout his reign in Israel. So it's interesting, the multiple layers that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, given to a person, God is fully aware of that, and God is um, totally um, understands and sees what happens 
when uh, there are two sides to the coin, so to speak, but God knows the outcome for both. Um, and it, it would have been so amazing if it was Saul's throne, that would have been the eternal throne, the um, lasting throne in the kingdom instead of David. So, back a little uh, sidetrack there, but in verse 12, we pick up, then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said shall Saul ring over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Again, one man must have been speaking for a, a bunch of men who agreed with him. They're looking for the guy, the spokesperson here, but they want to kill all the men who sided with him. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. See, that shows you this leadership quality, but it also shows you the grace that even Saul has here. Because rightfully, as a king, he could have had these men put to death, and there would have been no question about it. But he shows this wonderful grace to these rebels who were against them, because it's more important to him that the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Um, the defeat of the Ammonites. Now Samuel, Samuel um, loves this, and he picks a special place, not only to worship God, but also to make the coronation of Saul. In verse 14 and 15, then Samuel said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Gilgal has a special place in the heart of the children of Israel. Gilgal, if you know, um, it's a place name meaning circle or probably a circle of stones. And Gilgal is the first foothold on Palestinian soil when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan. And it became Israel's first worship place. Um, Gilgal has a history back here in Joshua. And when the children of Israel are about to pass over into the promised land, Joshua um, told by God how we were going to proceed. They're up at the Jordan River. And Joshua is going to tell the children of Israel this command from God. This is what you're going to do when you prepare to cross over the Jordan into the new land. When they do that, um, as Israel crosses, in chapter 3, um, and verse 2, as they have been camped out for three days, he sends the officers out and he tells them what's going to happen before they cross the Jordan. In verse 3 it says, of chapter 3 of Joshua, and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. 
Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know by which way you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua tells the people to sanctify themselves, and they take up the ark. Now, they step up before the lake, before the river, I'm sorry, with the ark of the covenant, the priests. And Joshua tells the priests that in verse 12 of chapter 3, now therefore take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man on every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. And the people are going to pass through on dry land, just like they did at the, at the, um, Red, at the Red Sea. Now the Jordan, is going to, their waters are going to stop, and the people, the children of Israel, are going to cross over. This is their first foot on the new land when they get there. When they pass through, memorial stones are set up. And it's interesting, Gilgal, this place name, not sure, sure where it is. They don't know because there are, throughout history, different Gilgals in Israel. And it just the place name meaning pebbles, um, or meaning circle, and probably a circle of stones. This is exactly what is going to happen here, because when um, the people travel into the midst of the Jordan, their 12 men are told to pick up stones and carry it to the other side. And when they get to the other side, they are to place these stones in Gilgal as a memorial to God. And that's just what happens. And Joshua, in chapter 4, verse 5, tells them to set up these memorial stones. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. So this is what Gilgal means. A circle, probably a circle of stones. And this is the first time that the children have set foot on the promised land right here. So it's important you, can, you know this is the first place of worship, which Joshua did um, when the people hurried over. Um, God exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They feared him, and they feared, as they feared Moses all the days of his life. And the people here worship God. In Gilgal. Now you know the significance and how precious Gilgal is, and why Samuel would gather all Israel to Gilgal to step on that, to come back to that same area where this all started, and to worship God. And so in verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. 
There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. We just want to brush over it a little bit. But this is Saul's coronation. This is Saul telling the people of Israel, this is your king. Um, Not all Israel knew at the time who their king was. You understand that as it spread out, far and wide that not everybody yet knew who their king was. But here Samuel takes the opportunity to introduce Saul as their new king. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, now Samuel said to all Israel, indeed I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. In verse 2, and now here is the king walking before you. So we're soon going to see the ceremony for the coronation, the ordination of Saul as king. And Saul has been showing a tremendous amount of leadership here and just what a difference a man can be when he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. Saul had the opportunity to be a great king, one that would give in his throne an eternal throne um, for all time throughout his throughout all the generations coming after Saul that went to David but it just shows you that when the opportunity came Saul acted on it in the power of the spirit he has no excuse to stand before God and proclaim innocence and that he wasn't prepared to be a king Um, God gave him the power, God gave him the leadership qualities, God gave him the wisdom on how to conquer, and um, Saul has no excuse. The same as we, when God anoints um, and puts the Spirit upon us, we'll never be able to stand before God and say that he was unfair to us when we backslide. Amen? Well, Father... We thank you for that wonderful message of uh, actually the layering that you do when you move on a person's life. It accomplishes more than just the original purpose. We see our Lord and our God and our Savior layer upon layer. That movement accomplishes more than we can understand or we can see. It shows your power. It shows your wisdom, and it shows how one thing from you can affect so many different things. One movement on your part for one man or one woman can affect uh, so many things and so many uh, layers to it that we're unaware of the things. We see um, the obvious It's the unobvious that we are ignorant of on how your movement will uh, show grace and power to many and how your plan continues on and moves forward um, with that one step that that person takes in receiving your spirit. Oh, Father, um, bless you. Thank you for your heart. 
um, to give Saul the opportunity to be a king after your own heart. Um, he took it, but it was for a little while. And we just pray, Father, that we don't follow that path, but follow the path of the next future King David. In Jesus' name, amen.